Hello, and welcome to The Sitcom Club, another episode. Uh, this one is without Mooncat. Mooncat is on his holidays, so it's just me, Dr. Christian Troy, a.k.a. Uh, George. My name is George. And with me on this episode in particular is a Mr. Jonathan Sloman. Hello, boys and girls. Hello. Well, well predominantly boys. Well, it, uh, there's, a, there's a reason for me using that phrase. According to the stats. Yes, I know there is, and we will get to that. Okay. But you're jumping the gun. I mean, I know that people who are subscribers will know exactly what we're about to talk about. But, but for, for those that haven't read the uh, ID tags, why yeah. don't you tell them what the series is? They've put it on shuffle, and they've just risked it. They, they just, might they, have done. They might, be on the, they might be on the train, and they might have just put it on shuffle. <laughs> they thought it was uh, Aretha Franklin. And it's, the, the iPod is too far into their pockets for them to reach whilst... They're stuck. They're, they're stuck with us for the long haul. I like to think that someone out there is listening to this, they're in the... Against the, their will. Against, well, essentially against their will, because they're, they're sitting there on the train, and it's absolutely crammed, it's during rush hour, and it's one of those things where you're sitting next to someone, but your iPod's in your pocket... And if you do reach down for it, it feels like you're making an awkward statement against the large person sitting next to you, if indeed they're on your right yes. or, your, or, your, or your left, if you're, if you're that way inclined. But nevertheless, <laughs> I like the implica- implication that if you're left-handed, you're, you're inclined in a different way. Oh, nevertheless, yes. mm. it is true. However, I can inform that those, those, those troubled people... Those troubled people. ...on the rush hour, in the rush hour, that um, you are listening to The Sitcom Club, and this is about Whoops Apocalypse. Now... Now not, not Whoops Apocalypse Now. So, with me to talk about this is In the Room, which is a first. Uh, is this a first? Because you're usually over Skype. We're all over Skype, we're all over the world. Yes, worldwide. This, this is... is rather dull, we're both in the same room. I know, we can see each other, it's horrifying. Yuck. I feel ill, just looking at myself. It's disgusting. I've got a mirror. Now, this is the thing where Mr. Sloman here has a little bit of insight into Whoops Apocalypse. Why is this? Uh, well... More than I usual. wouldn't say inside. I didn't work on it. I wasn't on the set. I didn't see any being recorded. But I have done a lot of research into it, mm-hmm. all of which was collated and written up as the 150-page book uh, included in the DVD of Whoops Apocalypse. From Network... Network DVD. Indeed. Before we go into it, what I love about the series as a whole is the danger of it. I like the fact that... It's a very brave series. Just little things, like the third episode pretty much opens with a sketch entirely in Russian. Mm. Which is not standard sitcom fare. The first episode is actually very distasteful. You've got the beggar with his tongue cut out, you've got the, uh, the crucifixion. And it, it's, it's all right at the start. It's very much either hop on board or get out. You're either in or you're out. Yeah, yeah. which is always the sort of attitude behind Marshall and Renwick's work. What are the transmission dates for Whoops Apocalypse? Just so we're in the, we can put it into a, uh, a context. It was March to April 82, I know that much, but I can't tell you the exact dates. So the thing is about that is that it could only be one series. It yes. could only be one series. Well... Right? Yes, because that was part of the bargaining. That was how they got it made as a, a very big, expensive series with a lot of stars. Although mm. apparently they weren't paid very much. But the reason that it was double the budget of an average sitcom is, that, is because there would be no second series. You wouldn't need to spend any more. Yeah. And because it's such a prestigious uh, theme, there's a good chance it would win a couple of awards, be sold internationally. For people who ashamedly haven't even watched the series yet, but they're listening to this, for those who are the uninitiated, how would you sum up the plot of Whoops Apocalypse. The plot of Whoops Apocalypse. Well, it's important to remember it was made in 82, mm-hmm. written in 80 and 81. Um, 
1980, everything was changing. You had the new president, Reagan. You had the new prime minister, Thatcher. They were pretty much in and out of each other's pockets and Trident missiles were coming. And there was the Cold War was going on. It was just, the Cold War had been going on for since, you know, the 50s, but it really reached a head at the start of the 80s. The Olympics in Russia were boycotted. There's all these, it was a real time of turmoil at the time. And people were genuinely scared of this senile old man with his finger on the button. Mm. And there was a real atmosphere of, of, of terror in the air in society. But that was coming through on the comedy shows. Because mm. you also had alternative comedy coming up. And if you watch Al Fresco has a couple of anti-nuclear scenes. Mm-hmm. Yes, Prime Minister. I think the first episode of that features the Prime Minister looking at the button. first episode of Spitting Image features the button. But this is all a bit later. Mm. Whoops Apocalypse is born out of that frustration and that terror. And it's a sort of lighter way of how a normal world that we are living in at the moment can escalate to Armageddon, the end of the world. Mm. And we see it happen over, well, it's a six-week series, six weeks, but it, yeah. it's eight weeks within their time period. Mm. In terms of the, the background to it, not politically, but in terms of the casting and, and the writing side mm. of things... How does um, Marshall and Renwick relate to in terms of uh, the likes of End of Part 1? Yes. Well, I said it came out of the anger of the, the political situation at the time. It also came out of Marshall and Renwick's particular anger at LWT itself and the scheduling of their last series, End of Part 1, which was a sketch show. It wasn't for children. There was nothing too offensive in it, a couple of bawdy references and a couple of weird just references that kids wouldn't get. Mm. Like Nicholas Parsons being called Nicholas was quite good with Arthur Haynes, which I'm sure all the five-year-olds were jumping up and down about in 1979. But it went out at 5.30 on a Saturday. This is because Humphrey Barclay, who was the producer of the show and also the head of LWT comedy at the time, and he is pretty much responsible for Martin Renwick's television career, he had a theory that you could put comedy in experimental corners, and they were early in the afternoon or very late at night. And so the LWT comedy slot was pretty much early afternoon or late at night, 10 o'clock on a Sunday usually. This had been a big success for him 10 years before. He did Do Not Adjust Your Set, which was the kids' series with Michael Palin, Terry Jones, Eric Idle, Terry Gilliam's animations, David Jason and Denise Coffey, who later turned up in End of Part One. And this was on in the afternoons, and it became a sort of guilty pleasure of businessmen who'd rush home to watch it, including Cleese and Chapman who would stop writing to watch it and it was partially this which led to Python. So Barclay thought, well, we'll put End of Part 1 on in the kids' slot and the adults will flock to it as before, except this time the adults didn't really flock to it. It got some good reviews from Margaret Forward, particularly in The Sun, and it did get nominated for a couple of awards. It was certainly put up for the Rose Door, but it was fairly overlooked not just compared to do not adjust your set but also compared to not the nine o'clock news which was on bbc two in a sensible time slot nine o'clock obviously and that got all the good reviews and accolades that many thought end of part one should have received do you think lwt probably suffered a bit in that respect because of the amount of comedy that it was producing at the time Uh, a lot of which in retrospect is politely speaking below par LWT, I, I wouldn't say below par, they were in an interesting place around the early 80s. Yeah, I mean, it was all, I mean, you, but I mean, in, in light of like late 70s, early 80s, some of the stuff they were putting out. There was some very soft stuff, stuff yeah. like No Honestly and Piggy in the Middle. And in fact, there's a sketch in End of Part One where you see program planners with the LWT comedy sausage machine. Yes, just put in the sausage and out comes, yes, honestly and mm. honestly. And so arguably affected their reputation at that juncture. So when there something is that reputation. a bit and experimental and bawdy came out, it probably 
ran the risk of not really getting noticed. Yeah, around that time, sort of late 70s, LWT was playing it fairly safe. That's what when Humphrey Barkley came on board, I think it was 77, he tried to give it a bit of a kick up the arse and create a few stranger things. And he did bring Marshall and Renwick in. And uh, we're jumping ahead a bit, but this is 1980 when they were first sort of trying to get Whoops Apocalypse off the ground. LWT was experimenting a little bit. They had Kinvig, which was, uh, they had Fancy Wanderers. They would soon have stuff like Dead Earnest, which was Andrew Sachs in Heaven. The other big important one was Agony. Compare it to, say, George and Mildred of a few years earlier. Mm. Agony was very frank in its sexuality. It had a, a gay couple who were sensitively portrayed as opposed to, you know, are you being served type caricatures. And then you got Whoops Apocalypse that sort of sprung out of that. And further down the line, you end up with um, OTT and Spitting Image. Which is a whole other world. Whole other worlds, yes. Whole other worlds. Well, OTT was central, wasn't LWT. But... Although Spitting Image did have a crossover eventually yes. with Marshall Rumble. They, had the, they all with had the hot same metal. slot. Or with Hot Metal. Yeah, yeah. But Whoops Apocalypse. Now, let's talk about the casting because mm. the story itself is covering many different facts. It's covering Russia, it's covering Britain, it's covering America. It, yes. But one beyond. of the great traits of Whoops Apocalypse, and, then, and one of the reasons it hasn't dated, even though it's got some very specific references to mm. that period, is that it's so fast. It's got mm. an American pacing. And that's because you've got the scenes in the White House, scenes in the Politburo, scenes in the uh, Number 10 Downing Street, and scenes everywhere else besides. Really fast cut. David Renwick said that he respected director John Reardon for not cutting any of his dialogue by cutting out the breaths, just to keep it so tight. He would cut out breaths of people speaking. Because it was this strange sort of cutting from bit to bit, it was it was also kind of a sketch show with a narrative. There are parts in it that aren't required as such to the narrative, but they yeah, work some entirely... Of it is, well, Will Elder, who used to draw for Mad Magazine, he calls such things chicken fat. They, mm. they don't really need to be there, but it may, they make it taste so much better. They certainly add a flavour to the world that you're in, because it's very dark. It's a very, very dark sitcom. Well, yeah. Essentially. It ends with the end of the world. It's the end of the world. But, I mean, the fact that everything leading to it is slightly despaired. It's There's, slightly, It's yeah. a weird world. It, 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 it's our world, but slightly heightened. The fact that you've got Ed Bishop as Jay Garrick, the newsreader, linking everything. He is telling you all these bleak things, but then he'll also tell you, like, a two Rollies joke about... Doris Conkright, who took a lock of Frank Sinatra's hair 37 years ago, has sold it back to him today for an undisclosed sum. You know, that sort of stupid uh, weekending-style yeah. joke. But it fits perfectly in this very silly but also dark world. And I mean, it, Sometimes it doesn't. In what respect? Oh, go on, <laughs> I'm not going to say it's a perfect series, because there are a few bits that do stand out. Well, yeah, uh, Especially yeah, in the film, where it, it's ramped up. Cleese says that one of Marshall and Renwick's faults is that they tend to stick a lot of jokes in at the expense of character. I think hum Humphrey Barclay certainly pulled it down a lot for the series. And although there are loads of jokes, and loads of really good jokes, let's not forget that, they know when to stop it and when to emphasise a point and when to do a serious moment yeah. in the series. Less so the film. The film is a bit less disciplined. We'll talk about the film later on. In terms of the casting, you've got this wonderful combo of more revered long-term comedy actors, and then you've got the slight sliver of... 80s alternative, you've got Alexis Sir, you've got Absolutely. Rick Mayle, this is, this Gary is Peacock in the... Danny Peacock in the film. Sorry, I apologise. Danny, Peacock, Danny yeah. Peacock in the film. This this is just at the start of alternative comedy. I, I argue that Whoops Apocalypse is the first alternative sitcom. It's a few months before The Young Ones airs. Mm. Um, although I think the pilot had been shot by the time it aired. The Young Ones pilot, that is. And Marshall and Renwick, 
they sort of had a schizophrenic life at, at the end of the 70s. They were writing for Light Entertainment, the two Ronnies and Bruce Forsyth and people like that. But they were huge fans of the comedy store and the comic strip. And they saw these people live. Indeed, they wrote a role for Alexi Sale in Whoops Apocalypse, even though he never acted before. Yeah, the cast is incredible. There's 11 leads and about a cast of 100. And the 11 leads are all perfectly picked. Let, let's go through them individually, individually. Uh, in, in well, relation is, to the uh, character and to the, and to the person I'll playing. I'll name them all first and then we'll go back because we can just go completely off. Okay. I can um, talk about any of them for hours. Go, go, by, uh, sure. go by location. Let's start with the Americans. There are the two Americans. Mm-hmm. Johnny Cyclops, the president, who is yeah. played by Barry Morse. And his aide, the deacon, who is played by John Barron. Then we've got the Brits. There are three Brits. Prime Minister Kevin Pork, played by Peter Jones. And Brian and Dave, who are played by... They're the cabinet. They don't have surnames. Yeah. They're played by uh, Jeffrey Palmer and Richard Davies. Usually preceded by O'Tannenbaum. Yes, because they're, they're a Labour government. There's that great joke in the first one, which is obviously wishful thinking. What would happen if the Labour Party got in and they saw everything out in ten minutes? And they've got a picture of Che Guevara on the wall. They're really, you know, more socialist than Labour. Anyway, those are the Brits. Then there's the two Russians, who are Premier Dubenkin, played by Richard Griffiths. And there's plenty of plenty of Dubenkins about. Yeah. And there's Commissar Solzhenitsyn, no relation, played by Alexei Sale. Then there's the Shah of Iran and his assistant Abdab, and they are played by Bruce Montague and David Kelly, a Jew and an Irishman. And... Uh, <laughs> Then you've got the two miscellaneous of No Fixed Abode. One is Ed Bishop, who I mentioned earlier, who is the newsreader Jay Garrick. Mm-hmm. And then there is Lacrobat, the international mercenary, literal man of a thousand faces, played by John Cleese. Out, out of the two of them, I would argue that Garrick is probably close to a Greek chorus than the other miscellaneous. I, I say so in the book, yes. It's such a fast-cut series, and you're jumping about, not just geographically, but in time. You have these captions popping up saying the first week, the second week, whatever. Uh, but also still with that real element of I mean, even when it comes out, it, white on black, it's... Oh, yeah. You know, it's this... You see that first week caption and you're like, this is not going to end well. It's impending. When is it going to end and how? Yeah. It, it's it's not just a comedy show. It's also... I was going to say who done it, but that's not quite right, is it? It's, a, it's or, a, When's it going to happen? When doing it? You know it's the end of the world. It's called Whoops Apocalypse. And it starts with that amazing sequence where you're going through an apocalyptic landscape mm. and seeing a... With the strings. What may be the only survivor selling mushrooms in a protest. Mm. We don't know who that is. We don't know who that is. So you know the world's going to end. Mm -hmm. The question is how? And that's what you follow for the next... You just watch everything collapse. Every little bit just collapses. I think that's the benefit of a series, comedy or drama, where you know where it's going. You just want to know how it gets there, arguably. Yeah, I mean... I'm not opposed to regular sitcoms where everything takes oh, back to, yeah, yeah. to resets at the start. I think that's fine. But I think at that point, that's what made there's it a, a bit, bit more, different. There's a lot of colour to this. The fact that it is a self-contained story. Yeah, I mean, that's the thing. It's like, if it, if it went and, on... And, from... and, and that it's funny as well. <laughs> we can't yeah. ignore that. Oh, yeah, I mean, the humour is, is superb. I mean, the, the, the comedy in it is very sure. fast-paced. And there's... And it's a great ensemble cast. Well, and look, look at the pedigree behind it. You've got Marshall and Renwick, who I think they've been writing for eight years together and, and about a decade on and off separately. They've done it. They've written sketches for everybody. They've had the Burkis way by this point. They've got their pedigree. You've got Humphrey Barclay producing, and he knows comedy. He's been at LWT, I think, for a decade or so. And before that, he was producing all the Doctor series. And before that, he was producing stuff on the radio. And before that, he was in the footlights Mm -hmm. with Cleese and Cook and everybody. So he really knows his stuff. And you've got John Reardon directing, who's directed 
a lot of sitcoms, including No Honesty and things like that, but also a lot of news programs. He directed Aquarius, the arts program. Mm-hmm. Russell Harty and all that jazz. And he's got quite the pedigree. Well, I say Russell Harty, I mean... Did he do Russell Harty? I'm not sure. Well, not, not personally, but I mean... The, <laughs> well, the one episode of Aquarius that I've seen is Russell Harty having a chat with Dali. Oh, okay. And it's great. There's, <laughs> it's, uh, there's yeah. one really good episode of Aquarius with um, Eric Idle and John Cleese doing a football sketch. Oh. And I wonder if John Reardon's connection with Cleese there helped get him cast. I think it was Humphrey Barkley primarily got Cleese cast in it. There is a weird connection to Python and sports. I mean, if you look at the Bother Boys and all that. The, well, uh, in Whoops Apocalypse. Mullard's in it. You listen to uh, Lacrobat. Obligatory Mullard reference there, ladies and gentlemen. You mean Funny Game Football? Yeah. The album. Funny Game Football is the album, but... We are the Bother Boys! Yes. It's yeah. a very strange album. It's a very odd album. Yes. I couldn't tell you where to locate that. I've, I've, I've got a copy. I've got a copy, but, uh, <laughs> but I, I, apologize. I I feel... Actually, I think maybe I've got your copy. Have you? Oh, possibly. Uh, that might be... <laughs> I don't need it back any time too soon. Uh, are you sure? I, I don't want it. Oh, I'll take it then. It's, well, I'll, I'll keep it just in case. But I read Arthur Mullard's autobiography recently. And I'm it wasn't, sorry. It wasn't mentioned at all. <laughs> A lot of things weren't mentioned in that autobiography. <laughs> ah, <laughs> no, <laughs> ah, no comment. Well, that was one chapter of his... No oh, comment! Oh dear, yes. Where are we now? Uh, we Well... I would like to hear your um, rundown of these primary characters, uh, one by oh, one. Oh, yeah, we're still you doing You said that. you could say all hours. I, I'm up for this. Ooh, uh, well, where to start? Fair. Start with Johnny Cyclops. Johnny Cyclops. President Johnny Cyclops. Very interesting character. He started off in the BBC pilot, because the show was originally written for the BBC. Hmm. I should explain that. Between series one and series two of End of Part One, the first series went out at 5.30, and the second one went out at 4 o'clock. Before it aired... Marshall and Renwick gave LWT this ultimatum. They said, move it later, put it in a proper time slot or we won't do any more. And they weren't just bluffing. They'd actually gone to the BBC and asked if they could write a series for them. And John Howard Davis, who was head of comedy at the time, liked them and and commissioned them to write Whoops Apocalypse. And End of Part One went out in the four o'clock time slot, never moved. And so there was no more End of Part One. They didn't care because they were very happy to go to the BBC and do Whoops Apocalypse. About a year later, they handed in the script of Whoops Apocalypse and John Howard Davis hated it. <laughs> he just utterly hated it. Yeah. And one of the reasons he hated it is because the president was too dopey. I mean, the president should be naive. If he's going to cause the apocalypse, you have to believe it's an accident, hence the title. Mm. If he's genuinely stupid, you hate him. And or, or genuinely sincere and intends to in the world. That that would well, be a very intriguing... Uh... Well, if you've seen the film, you'll know that that's how Peter Cook's character turns out. Spoilers. Spoilers, yes. Yeah, for the series, he was softened a lot. He was actually made more naive than idiotic. He's affable. Yes. He's likeable. He's like, you, can't, yeah. you want him to succeed. You, you're, you're more with him than you are the deacon, who is just horrible. And arg- genuinely evil. And arguably, that's why he's one of the people who, from what we can gather, survives. Maybe. I, it's, yeah, let's... He's, he's off in the bunker and, well... Is we it too know. early to talk about the ending? Pretty much, yes. Yeah, right, okay. We'll talk about the ending at the end. But, but he's very well cast as Barry Morse, who, really good actor, who plays him sympathetically, but still stupid. Mm. He's an odd choice. At the time, he would have been an odd choice because he'd knew, he hadn't done comedy before mm-hmm. and he hadn't done... Well, he wasn't American. He was, a, he was a cockney son of a tobacconist. And well, that, well, I hope you mean that in a pleasant term. Like son of a tobacconist. Cockney, literally what happened. And he got into RADA, I think it was. He got into somewhere because Dame Edith Evans saw him audition. 
yeah. doing Oscar Wilde, but with Cockney accent. And she thought it was so sincere, she got him in. And that was how he started. He did a lot of stage. Then he moved to Canada, became a sort of TV star. And he was the, he's the bad guy in The Fugitive. He's, well, the good guy, I suppose. The one that's chasing the f- David Jansen. Well, David Jason. David Johansson. Oh. Not the one from the New York Dolls. I thought you think the American, American, British version of the Fugitive was David Jason. Richard Kimball, is that the character in the Fugitive? Yeah, yeah, yeah. He is not Richard Kimball. He's the detective who chases Richard Kimball. And because of that, that got him worldwide fame and he got him a lot of death threats from all over the world. Oh, blimey. He used to say he could tell when a new country had bought the series because you get death threats in that language. Yeah. But he was really good at accents. That's the thing. He was, he was British, but he could do American, he could do Russian, he could do all sorts. And he moved back to London and got cast as Americans often because he was so good at the accent. He became big in Britain in Space 1999. That was his big series. And I don't know if Marshall and Renwick had him in mind when they wrote the role. Because Marshall and Renwick, when they were writing early on their sketches and things, they would picture who they wanted to play it. And if they knew it was written for Ronnie Barker or whoever, they'd picture Ronnie Barker. But if they didn't know where they were going to send it, they would picture their comedy heroes be it the Pythons, Woody Allen, Steve Martin, just whoever they liked. And so when they were writing Whoops Apocalypse, the same thing was in mind. There are two characters named in the, in the pilot script, the LWT pilot script, the second one. And they are the deacon to be played by John Barron in the pilot script. And another character called Griebling, who is to be played by David Batley, who is that sort of rat-faced guy from Rutler Weekend Television. And the character never appears in the series, but it makes the sketch, if you picture him in it, just being... Um, disgruntled with the whole situation. So yes, a few Whoops Apocalypse characters were written with someone in mind. I don't know if Cyclops was. And but we... they would have known Barry Morse from Space 1999. In fact, in End of Part 1, there's a very brief joke about Space 1899. Just to clarify, Barry Morse, not Barry Morse. Barry Morse is not... his name. Two words. Yeah, not Barry, Barry Morse. Barry Morse. Not just Barry Morse. No. The Deacon. Who is the character parodying? And furthermore, what's the background of the actor? Okay, well, the actor is uh, John Barron, who was very recognisable at that time for the fall and rise of Reginald Barron, rather, where he was the boss, CJ. Yes, he didn't get where he was today. That's him. Mm-hmm. But he was also known for authority figures. He was in uh, Emergency Ward 10 and things like that. And sitcom Vickers. He was in Potter. And um, this sort of brings the two worlds together. He's an authoritarian sitcom vicar. Who is he based on? That was a question that was all over the press at the time. There was a lot of speculation that he was based on Haig, Alexander Haig, who was the uh, president's assistant religious advisor at the time. Um, Not quite. He's sort of an amalgam of people. He's partially based on John Foster Dulles. He was certainly in Barron's mind, the sort of the same height, same glasses, same attitude. But also a bit of Ian Paisley in there, the sort of righteous... I get that. ...bellowing, yeah. uh, you know, different accent. <laughs> the bellowing uh, nature of his uh, religious beliefs. Yeah, it's sort of a mixture of all those things. What about... There is a bit of Hague in there. And what about the um, British contingency? Well, the British contingency, there's the two assistants. They're not assistants, are they? They're the cabinet. Bri- Dave and Brian. Mm. <laughs> Brilliant names. Because they're, they're the Labour Party, so they're not posh. And there's Kevin Pork, a Prime Minister called Kevin... Brilliant. I was wondering the other day if Kevin Pork, they got the idea from the name from Kevin Bacon, but I think that's That'd be, his yeah. career's a little later. Barely. Uh, but yeah, Kevin Pork is played by Peter Jones. He is a prime minister who, well, spoiler, if you haven't seen the series, stop right now and go and watch it. 
But he is... Or, or forward this bit to the end where we say goodbye. Goodbye. <laughs> he's a prime minister who thinks he's Superman. He's mad. He's kind of adorable mad. Again, brilliant casting. Yeah. If it had been someone wacky, Marty Feldman or someone, or mm. even Tim Brooke Taylor maybe, it, it wouldn't quite have worked. Because it was Peter Jones... Peter Jones was at that time really famous, not just for the rag trade, but for the voice of the book in Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy and Just a Minute, both of which he would do long monologues of complete bollocks, but it would sound completely believable. And in Whoops Apocalypse, when he tells you he's Superman, it's funny, but as the story goes on, you kind of think, is he, he could be Superman. Yeah. <laughs> and his cabinet, his cabinet, two guys, Richard Davies' character starts believing it. Jeffrey Palmer less so, but as he goes on. Yeah, I mean, the thing is as well, when, when Jeffrey Palmer kind of succumbs to it, you, you actually kind of feel quite bad. They're, again, uh, they're both very well cast because Palmer is stiff upper lip, unflappable British mm. Englishman. And Richard Davies is this sort of wired, hysterical Welshman. Yeah. So you've got him going mad and shouting out the windows and all this, and Palmer just trying to calm him down and keep the Russians away because the Russians are slowly invading and this is not helping any. Not to deviate off topic entirely, but um, in regards to sets, now there are quite a lot of uh, sequences that are that were filmed on location. But I do find that what I love about it is there are certain standard sets. For example, the White House offices, the Prime Minister's office, the office in Russia. But there's a slight claustrophobia to it all, especially with the uh, British one, because uh, by the end of it, they they are dominated and they can't move. They're they're yeah. literally trapped. I... I'm not um, sure how deliberate that is. That might just be because it's a small space. Yeah, well, that's the thing. They, they, they made use of the fact that they were... Studio One. I think by this point, you, you, you get the impression they certainly exhausted the budget. If not, by a dog, then an elephant. Oh, yeah. Uh, they, they, it's been said it was double the price of a sitcom. Yeah. Which isn't a lot when you think about it. When you consider the sitcoms they were making at the time, like Agony and... Uh... Was it Three's Company with Elaine Stritch or whatever it was called? Because also, I mean, if we, if so, if we talk about the British contingency as well, uh, in terms of another sense of claustrophobia, a character which um, who is a nomad, but never gets to where they want. It's an element of uh, claustrophobia for them as a character because yeah. they're never where they actually want to be. Is the Shah? The Shah, uh, a, a sitcom character with no sit. He's interesting as well. He's another good casting because. This all goes back to the first BBC pilot script. There was that and then an LWT's pilot script and then the series. But in the first scripts, he was the Shah. In real life, the Shah had died, just died. He'd, um, but he was a hated man and Carter, Jimmy Carter, President Jimmy Carter. This is back at the end, you know, pre-Reagan. Mm. The Shah had, let me see if I can remember, he, he was offered medical treatment. He needed medical treatment and Carter welcomed him to the US to have it. Because there was no argument between him and the Shah of Iran. There was a lot of argument with the Iranians and the Shah of Iran. So they held Americans hostage to uh, try and get the Shah sent back. And the Shah died while he was in the States. So it was, it was a big thing about the Shah. Was that natural? I'm not going to speculate. So yes, the Shah. That was the real life Shah. And mm. they had written the scripts whilst this was going on. So it was the Shah. And Humphrey Barclay... In the same way the president got a bit less evil and more naive, the Shah became the brother of the Shah. I think he was originally meant to be like the Shah, then the son of the Shah, and that wasn't far enough, so he became the brother of the Shah. So he was innocent. And they cast the nicest guy <laughs> to play this evil dictator, yeah. Bruce Montague. He's got a lovely, I mean, lovely accent and lovely... He's a great guy. He, um, well, you know where he's from. He's from Butterflies. Uh... He's the Lothario that Wendy Craig wants to have an affair with. And of course, his psychic. 
yes, the sidekick is Abdab. He's just some comic relief. Yeah. Really, but he's played by David Kelly. Now, not to elaborate hugely on this, but what is it about when it's one of those things where a character could succumb to an awful, terrible fate, but mm. essentially it's when you've got a character accompanied by their psychic and there's a slight... It's a reassurance factor. It's sort of like... If, if, if it was him on his own, there'd be something bleak about it, but the fact that it's him and, and a foil, like a comic foil, but the point is, is that he's a subservient yeah. comic foil. Yeah. It kind of works as... It's just the old comic traits so that goes back to Lauren mm. Hardy. Oh, yeah, You've yeah. got the annoyed guy who thinks he's serious, but it's really quite stupid. And the innocent guy who's doing stupid things and annoying him by just trying to help. But, but, this yeah. has been heightened in Whoops Apocalypse by making the assistant, the helper, blind. But because it's a duo, there's an assurance in that. That's what I like about it. Uh, is it I, a reassurance. I, I, I don't know why they did that. I would assume it's a script writing thing. Because if he just had the Shah on his own, he'd have to do a lot of monologues. And mm. how would he get from here to here? And why? If it was just the Shah on his own, he would do a hell of a lot better. And there's about he'd probably be off that boat very quickly. There's about three or four times where you're led by the series to believe that he's dead. Yeah, well, that's the whole plot of the series. Yeah. The Shah. I'm sure that's how Marshall Remick came up with it. When the Shah died in America, it was very convenient for everybody. And I'm sure they thought, what if he's not really dead? Well, the ultimate irony is, is that from what I can gather, he's one of the only people who is left alive by the end of it because he's not on the planet. <sighs> No, no, he is on the planet. That's why it crashes, Does doesn't it? it? That's what's mistaken for the missile. Oh, really? Yeah, yeah, it's crashing down to, to Russia. Oh, That's why Russia it. retaliate. I need to rewatch this. Yeah, yeah. It's been a while, to be fair. Mm. No, Let's... Everybody dies in that. Spoilers. Not everyone. Well, most. Well, most. I, I want one of those badges. Well, where your mushroom of pride? I have no idea where. Now, any... okay, just, just as an appeal. Yeah. If anyone <laughs> knows where to get a Wear Your Mushroom with Pride badge. Badges are, are a big thing in the Whoops Apocalypse universe. All, yeah. Everyone wears them. Uh, the Commissar Solzhenitsyn, and no relation, is wearing a whole batch of sort of communist badges of Lenin's face and things like that. Anyone can find an original of those. In, uh, the one I'd really like is in the film. You, you can barely see it on the TV, but you can see it in the cinema. Where Peter Cook's character is wearing a badge that says, Say No to Trolls. Yeah. I mean, there's plenty of opportunity. If anyone at all can um, let us know that they have located any kind of badge, where you mushroom pride, anything like that relating to what's apocalypse, as usual, of course, um, tweet us at at the sitcom club on Twitter, of course, and uh, or, or or indeed on Facebook at w.facebook.com. Yes, if anyone knows where the Johnny Cyclops bomb uh, prop folder is, well, it's sort of promotional booklet that was based on the. Well, part one. anyone who can provide us with any prop location, <laughs> we'll put this on the record now and say, I really would like to know where the sandwich is from Young Ones. You always from the young, I want to know where it is. The young Ones, good Lord. I want to know where the Young Ones is. Where the sandwich that crushed Dawn French, I want to know where it is. I want to know where the sticky bun is. Sides are in an archive or destroyed. SPG was in... Um, I would imagine that the puppets and the young ones went back to the puppeteer. SPG was Marcus at the BBC. Kimball. What? Was he? That was there. I don't remember. D where the dead cat was. I remember the dead cat. That was SPG from... was there as well. I didn't see I it. swear. I'm not sure. I don't think I've ever seen SPG. I'm pretty sure SPG was there. You were more interested in the dead cat from One Foot in the Grave. I would have been more interested in SPG if I'd seen him. Well, speaking of SPG, let's go on to the Russian element here. And when I, but when I say, of course, speaking of SPG, I do, of course, mean the connection between Alexei Sale. Yes. Young ones. 
Well, Alexi Sale plays uh, Commissar Solzhenitsyn, brackets, no relation, close brackets, which is an old uh, Python joke of having a celebrity surname and then no relation written after it. And I, thi- I, I think the role was written for him. I'm not sure, because I know Marshall and Renwick, they would go to the comedy store, uh, the comic strip, and they would see Rick and Aid and uh, Friends and Saunders and Alexis Sale. And this is his first acting role. So I think they wrote it specifically for him, although I have a theory he wasn't in the pilot. I don't know quite who they had in the role. It's this mysterious pilot that I can't seem to find any information out about. And then, of course, so. the other Russian is Richard Griffiths. Yes, unusual, because well, he's not Russian. But he's another guy like um, Barry Morse, who can do all these great accents. And he's not afraid to jump in and try a new challenge. And, and was... he's, he's really good at, at a, how a Russian would speak English, with that weird neutral mm. mispronunciation and rolling the R's. Was that his first sitcom role? No, he'd done a sitcom uh, before for LWT called Nobody's Perfect with Elaine Stritch. And Humphrey Barclay produced that. And I reckon it was Barclay thinking, he'd be good as a Russian, is what got him cast in Whoops Apocalypse. And of course, further down the line, he was the lead in a sitcom, A Kind of Living, which is... Um... He, he did a few sitcoms after that. He had a show called Fizz, with two Fs. Is Pie in the Sky a sitcom? No. 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 There was TLC, which was a sort of... Barely sitcom. Failed. Mm. <laughs> Doctor's scrubs ripped off. But yeah, Kind of Living, still not released on DVD. And um, of course, written by Paul Macon, the late great... I didn't know he died. Well, he had, yeah. Well, he had, but yeah, Nightingales. Uh, Nightingales and A Kind of Living will both be, um, at some point, uh, talked about on the sitcom club, uh, as well as TLC, I suppose. But nevertheless, so Richard Griffiths and Lexi Sell, the Russian... Those are the Russians. And then we have the miscellaneous. Well, we've already talked about Aid Bishop. Of course, uh, but what about... Lacrobat. The man, Ma- indeed. The man pe- himself. To many people, he was the star of the series. John Cleese in his only British sitcom recurring role mm-hmm. since Faulty Towers. You have to be careful how you say that, because he did do some one-offs and American yes. roles. And... But, uh, yes, he was he was the big star, and he only appears, really, in two episodes. He used to joke about it. He appears... You say, I'm in episode three for six minutes, episode five for four and a half minutes, and I forget. <laughs> I've, got, mm. I've got that completely wrong. The punchline is, I'm in episode six for 60 seconds, which he isn't. It's his stunt double. There was a big sort of publicity boost leading up to his appearance. He, was, he only appears in the third episode for the first time. And Time Out were especially, this is what we've been waiting for, finally, please. He plays so many different characters. It needs someone who's done sketch shows. It needs someone who can play different characters. And he's terrific in it. Yeah, and there's no harm in having an old familiar in a series oh, that is quite... Star, yeah. But also it's quite a risk take as well, I mean, in that respect, because you look at... The content, you look at the darkness of the whole thing, and to have the central antagonist, the man who essentially destroys the world, destroys the world and sets the wheel in motion, is played by an old familiar, an old favourite. I think that's why he did it. Cleese famously got bored a lot. He left Python. He uh, didn't do many Forty Towers. He, he would quit things. He stopped doing the Amnesty shows. You know, he very famously publicly stopped doing things. And um, at this stage in his career, early 80s, he was really looking to be a leading man. I mean, he only agreed to do Python because they were doing films again. That's the reason he rejoined. It's like, oh, if it's a film, I'll do it. And he wanted to be Brian in Life of Brian, and he lost that role to Graham Chapman. Later he realised, of course, nobody else but Graham Chapman could have done it. But he was still a little... He was after a role. 
and he'd just been in Jonathan Miller's uh, Taming of the Shrew for the BBC. He was about to get a role in the film of Privates on Parade. He was. It looked like he wouldn't want to do a TV series, mm. especially a sketch show sitcom that this was. But luckily, produced by Humphrey Barclay again, and Humphrey Barclay. You and your Humphrey Barclay. He's he's pretty. He's, it wouldn't be any way near as good if it wasn't for Humphrey Barclay. Mm, I know. And by it, I mean comedy. Generally. No, whoops, Apocalypse. It, it, he got Cleese, definitely, because not only had he, he worked with Cleese back in the Footlights and produced all those episodes of uh, I'm Sorry, I'll Read That Again, but he did The Strange Case of the End of Civilization as we know it with him. And a year before they shot Whoops, Apocalypse, he was in Barclay produced Peter Cook and Co., which featured Cleese. Mm. So they were still on very good terms. And Cleese read the script and loved it. He thought it was great. He thought it was funny. And I think that's why he did it. Because mm. he, he's so easily bored to do a finite script where his character is killed, where the whole world is killed, would have appealed to him. And it's lots of different roles and lots of fun stuff he hadn't done before, like riding a motorbike. And uh, the teeth. He really liked the teeth. He put teeth in, uh, fake teeth in his last appearance. And he explains teeth sort of fatten out his mouth and he's got a long face. And when you see mm. a fat mouth, it's like watching someone else. And he was very interested in that. And there's certainly appeal in seeing a familiar face. I, I think they wrote it for him because of all those strange companies he lists. The companies he reels off are very much like the football team he wrote for Python, Bunwhacket, Buzzard, Subble and Boot. And I reckon that was definitely on the minds of Marshall and Renwick when they were writing it. But I think Whether also, they actually thought they would get Cleese, yeah. I can't say. But I would say that also from that perspective, it's also about a prestigious, familiar face in comedy being able to go wild in that respect. I mean, there's some amazing moments in there where, where he's, he's the character who screws people over, he betrays them, he, the, he sets people up. The he, nature yeah. of, of the sketch format in Whoops Apocalypse means that all these characters, who are all excellently cast, I don't want to put Cleese mm. above anyone else, uh, they all have their little moments. So Alexis Sale has four or five really good scenes. Johnny Cyclops has a whole batch of great little sketches. Most of them are connected. Some of them aren't. Yeah. And, and of course, and Lacrobat, John Cleese comes on and does his... I think it's five people you see him as. It's not that many when it comes down to it. But they are these really silly, good sketches. So let's talk about the evolution of the plot as it goes along. It's over six episodes, six weeks. Six, uh, eight weeks. Eight weeks, sorry. Well, it's a six-week series, six week but series. it's eight weeks in the series. And it's leading It's leading up to what is the end. Yeah. In your opinion, I think this isn't one of those sitcoms that you could just randomly pick an episode to watch, is it? No. Actually, in Bradford, where they have the TV Heaven exhibit, where you can see um, certain episodes, like key episodes of a show, just as an example, they picked episode four of Whoops Apocalypse. Which isn't going to make sense to anybody watching it out of context. Yeah, it's one of those... You and I could watch an episode now out of context and it would be fine. But for someone who hadn't seen it before, you should watch it... It's very telling watching yeah, the... Uh, watching Reading the press about Whoops Apocalypse at the time. Mm. It got a huge amount of press at the, for the first and second episode. People loving it or people hating it. It got mm. a real amount of press and opinions. And it was on Did You See? And it was on... Uh, London, um, six o'clock show and various other things then it really quietened down absolutely nothing for episodes three four five six because it had found its fan base mm. the people who had watched it from the start and loved it were watching it the people who hadn't there was no way of them of getting into it you, you know this is a time without iPlayer this is a time without the turnaround repeat at the end of the week if you'd missed an episode that was it you were in, you were in trouble 
And unless you were lucky enough to have a tape recorder in 82, you couldn't go out on a Sunday if you were into it. So you, ultimately, it's, it is one of those series that works well uh, in the DVD age because it is a, a series that isn't ultimately limited by the fact that it's not one that you can just randomly drop into. It's one you have to watch in full and in order, but yeah. there's not much of it. It's six episodes, so it can be done quite very very easily. Of course. I mean, it's very... Well, I mean, I'd like to think that the second you get into it, you can just binge on it. You can just watch the whole series in one go. I mean, um, I'm not sure if I recommend that, but that's certainly how people watched it. And when it came out on video, they edited it together into a 137-minute version by lopping off the titles. Was it literally just that? Was that the only, was that the only edits? Yeah. Uh, were they the only edits? The... Uh, yeah, there are a few others. A couple of the endings didn't fit into the next episode, so they had to trim mm. those, uh, including the very meaningful scene at the end of the first one where Johnny Cyclops says they've blown up the show, this is the end. On the contrary, Mr. President, this is where it all begins. That's gone. And the end of the third episode, the shot is actually extended. Mm. I think they wanted to bring it out on two tapes of about, well, they'd be about 70 minutes each. But for some reason, they stuck them together. There's no extra bits. Only that bit in the middle and over the end credits, you get the full version of the theme. The Dallasy theme? The Dallasy theme, yes. Uh, okay. You get both themes because of the way it's the credits are extended, of course. Yeah. But it's the only place you can hear that full version of the theme. It's not on the DVD. So the reaction at the time, I think you've, you've covered that in part. Mm. It had a cult following, but it wasn't well-received per se. I know it was repeated, for sure. It was certainly repeated, wasn't yeah, it? Yeah, well, the LWT showed it again a year or so later, and then Channel 4 bought it when they were buying up old LWT stuff and showed it. Yeah. 84. And it was around the world. It was shown all over the world. Um, and it was shown at the NFT, and it was shown at the St. James Festival in, in the early 80s with Barry Morse in attendance. You know, I had a couple of screenings. So if you could tell me... <clears> and um, it did come out on, on tape, as I said. Yeah, I was going to say, because with the tape, I remember seeing a Betamax copy of it on, on eBay. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it came out on Betamax. Mm -hmm. And, of course, a spin-off book, which... Uh, the book came first. The book, if you can find it, is worth reading before the series. It's, yeah. it's a setup. Wait, the book was released prior to the film? The oh, sorry, the prior the to the series, sorry. The book came out about a month or two before the series, and, but, it, and it's intended to be read as such. It's pretty much set the week before the TV series. Oh. Because you get a profile of the Prime Minister, Gerald McNamara, who doesn't appear in the series itself because he's ousted and replaced with Pork. You get Pork as the opposition in the book, right. and he does reference he has something special to save the world. There's all these sort of previews and things. It, it's, the series is so fast. The book is like, these are the people you will meet. Well, speaking of books that are hard to find, just to clarify, Mr. Sloman's 150-page-plus hmm. tale of Whoops Apocalypse. Is that tale? Is that appropriate? Saga. Essay? Saga. Saga. <laughs> Ongoing chapter of Whoops Apocalypse is all available as a PDF file. A PDF file. Yes. Just to emphasize that. On the Whoops Apocalypse yes, DVD. They, they didn't have the money to print it. But. <laughs> Which is why I suggested an extra for the Whoops Apocalypse disc. They looked into it, but they couldn't afford it, so it was ridiculous. Well, that's the thing. I, I think, uh, based on what you just said, I mean, it would have been quite good to have the book as a PDF uh, file. You mean as a print file? Hard well, copy. No, no, the, well, your book, yes. Oh, but, the Whoops Apocalypse Yeah, the Whoops Apocalypse oh, that'd be being wonderful. out of print, because if it acts as a prequel... That would be wonderful, yes, but you would have to clear it with uh, Unwin Publishers, or was it WH Allen, whoever it was, I think it was Unwin. Yeah. You'd still have to clear it with them, and I don't think they exist anymore, so I don't know who owns the book. Mm. If anyone it's... knows, let us know. Yeah. Although, of course, one huge extra in relation to 
the series that's on the DVD set is the film. The film, yes. So what's the story behind the film? What, how did it go from the series to the film? Obviously, as you said, the series was, had uh, been syndicated worldwide. Yes. So what was the intention of the film in that respect? Because if, if the series itself had had some kind of an impact... The series had a big impact worldwide. Playboy Channel bought it. It was their first comedy show. It won an international award at somewhere or other. So what was the reasoning behind making a film then, if it had already really reached some kind of a worldwide... Brian Eastman, the producer, Brian Eastman, Mm -hmm. watched the episode of Whoops Apocalypse, the first episode that went out as it went out, and thought, this is really good, but it would work better as a film. There's a proper plot, there's a proper scene, it would interlock so much better as a 90-minute feature. And that was it. He just wanted to make it. He had his own production company with his own director and they were making shorts and things and they wanted to make a feature. So what are the intrinsical differences between the television series and the film? I mean, of course, there are some people I would have thought that maybe might have seen the film but not the series and vice versa. I think I saw the film before I saw the series. Lovely poster. It was easier to find. Well, yeah, Paul Semple, is that his name? Illustrator. Yeah, Yeah, he did all the Tom Sharp novel covers. Mm -hmm. In fact, I think that's how he got the work because Brian Eastman produced couple of Tom Sharp productions on TV. Which is leading to a whole different query regarding Wilt, the movie. <laughs> I can talk about Wilt for a bit. Well, but, uh, maybe we'll get to that. That, that comes after. That, that could be a bonus. <laughs> you know. I'm happy to talk about Wilt, but the, the Whoops Apocalypse film came about because Brian Eastman just wanted to make it as a film. As simple as that. Obviously, by the time he got involved in this and got the money together and got Marshall Renwick to write the script, the series had been and come and gone. And he didn't want to emulate the series. So he just wanted to make sort of something inspired by the series. So you've got the Lacrobat character. You've got the SAS sequence. You've got bits and pieces that come from the show, uh, like um, Jeb Grodd, the insane um, CIA agent, who a few of his words go straight into the film. But otherwise, it was intended to be a completely different film with just the same sort of attitude and spirit and speed. And did it succeed, Mm. in your opinion? There's some very funny stuff in it. So what didn't translate from the series to the film, then? Ah, well, the film kind of had three major problems. The director, the writer, and the cast. Let's go in order. The director, he was originally supposed to be Leszek Buzinski, if I'm pronouncing that correctly, who was the partner in Brian Eastman's company. The idea was he'd produce and he'd direct, and they did lots of adverts. They did a couple of shorts. Then they got a Channel 4 series called Father's Day. They got The Plot on the Landscape on BBC Two, which was based on the Sharp novel, which was a huge hit. And then Berninsky moved to New York. So we had to find a new director quite suddenly for this film. And there aren't many comedy directors in Britain at that time. You know, you got stuff like Morons from Outer Space directed by Mike Hodges and people like that. It was all, it was all a bit odd. I mean, that's, that's another conversation. I mean, in, in that respect, we should definitely at some point talk about British comedy films, especially well, in the 80s, 90s. As, as Brian Eastman said when he was trying to find a director, if Dick Lester and Terry Jones are busy, you're a bit stuck. So he mm. decided not to go for an established name, but to go for a newcomer. The newcomer he found was called Tom Busman. He, he did a lot of commercials, like over 2,000 commercials. A lot of them award-winning, a lot of them very funny. And Brian Eastman's thinking was, instead of doing you know, a bunch of 30-second funny commercials. If he does a 100-minute-long funny commercials, that's a film, which is good and bad. Some of it, I mean, some of the film Whoops Apocalypse looks absolutely beautiful and the comedy is fine and perfect, but it also leads to an unbalance. It's a bit unstructured for my liking. 
for example, there's a scene with the female president, played by Loretta Swit, who is interrupted in the middle of the night, and so she's wearing a sort of dressing gown and a towel around her head in a very feminine manner. Then her defence secretary, Shane Rimmer, comes in, and he's dressed in the towel and the, and the dressing gown in a very feminine manner. Yeah, that's a cute joke, but it's kind of it doesn't really fit in that world. It doesn't fit in that film, especially at that point. The film is a series of very funny moments. It doesn't quite hang together. Uh, the second problem, I said the writers. That's not quite true, because it was written by Marshall and Renwick, who wrote the original series. When Eastman tried to get it off the ground, he lost his British funding, so he went to America, where they were advised to rewrite the script to make it more American. They did, and although they were rejected by the American company, a British company, ITC, liked it, now that it was more American, and they made it. And throughout, they had a lot of problems trying to make it more American. Even during the editing, people were insisting Peter Cook's character was cut out, which Marshall and Renwick reluctantly did and look back and now think it's a mistake. And Marshall and Renwick, those airplane-style jokes, they were prone to put into the uh, series, but take out. You, know, you have to hold them back. Mm. Humphrey Barclay kept taking them out and, and flattening them down, you know, making the president not so much an idiot, but a naive and stuff like that, just sort of flattening it all into the same universe. The producer, Brian Eastman, wasn't so much doing that for the film, so you do get a lot of wacky airplane-style gags, like the one I said before about the towel, that don't quite fit in. Like, there's a Rambogram in it. Mm. And it's funny in and of itself, but it doesn't really fit in the same world as Lacrobat. Which is bizarre, because it is a slower pace to the series, and yet the series is twice as long. Pace is different. If you're watching it in half-hour sections, or even 15 minutes before every part... I do, there's I must, a lot to cram in. Well, I must admit, in I the remember, film, there's a lot less to cram in. I remember pausing a couple of times with the film, whereas the series I could watch straight through much more easily. Instead of the uh, the film was a bit of a mouthful. The film is stop and start. That's the problem. It's yeah. sketches. They're sometimes very good sketches. And I, I saw it in the cinema actually um, in the, three years ago in the David Renwick season in the NFT, mm. and it was getting laughs from the fifteen people oh, yeah. in the audience. Well, what are your opinions on the casting well, differences? Uh, here we go now. David Renwick put it best in his Peter Cook fanzine interview when he said he thought the film... The film is a political triangle. You've got the president, the prime minister, and Lacrobat. And he said ideally all three would be funny, but it could work if two of them, the prime minister and Lacrobat, were funny. In the end, only the prime minister was funny. He didn't much care for Loretta Swift, who's very good, but she's playing it straight, which is fine, but it does mean her scenes are sort of flat. And so you have to fill him up with Shane Rimmer with a towel on his head. I don't know why I keep going back to that. Peter Cook's very funny indeed, and he fills that role perfectly. The, the role was written for John Cleese as his time bandits, Duke of Kent, Robin Hood type. Um, which, of course, Cleese pretty much stole from watching Beyond the Fringe back in the 60s. So Cook's perfect for that. And he, and he knew the role inside and out, so he just ad-libbed a couple of times. And really, some of the best lines in the film are his. The only actor I can think of that, well, that crosses over between television and film but plays two different characters mm -hmm. is Rick Mail. Rick Mail, yes. Are there any others? No, there's plenty. Um, Are there? Blaine Fairman is in both. and uh, Actually, Ed Bishop's in, in the film as a news reporter rather than a news guy. Right, but I mean, there aren't any... Alexis, no, Sa Alexis Sales in both but playing a different character. Yes, yes. There's, there's, a, there's several members of the cast. Chris Monkey... I think it's pronounced monkey. It might be pronounced monk. There's an M. There's an E at the end. Christopher Monk 
he is in the first episode. He appears as a newscaster. There's all these weird crossovers. Because, again, mm. the film was mostly shot in Britain. So you get the same people who can play Americans that live in Britain. Rick's an interesting case. Uniquely, between his small role in the series, mm. he has become a star. He's done the young ones. He's done the comic strip. He's done Kevin Turvey. He's become a big name. And so when they stick him in the films, he has pretty much a whole 15-minute section to himself. Now, who's the actor who, who played the investigator who ends up dying at the hands of... Oh, Christopher Malcolm. Who, He's in both. I mean, I know him more so from his appearance in Only Fools and Horses. Oh, and absolutely fabulous. Absolutely fabulous. And the He's first in Star Wars as well. He's in one of the Star Warses. He's yeah. another. He's a Canadian who lives in London, and so he gets American parts. Do you like fish? But the other, yes. the other thing that's, that's good about him. him, I'm gonna, I'm gonna ignore that. He from Only Fools and Horses. Yes, yes, yes. Or fish. Yes, he says fish. He can drive a motorbike, so he got the role in the series as the motorbike cop. That's really him driving, if you watch it. And he's in Composite Presents. Yeah, he's in loads of stuff. He was the original Brad in Rocky Horror on stage. Blimey. And yeah, they cast him again in the film. I don't know if they wrote it for it, if Marshall Renwick wrote, wrote it with that in mind, but mm. maybe uh, they did. And of course, Ian Richardson. Ian Richardson, not in the series, but in the film. In the film, Very yeah. good, bit distinguished. He wasn't... He, he never was too distinguished. It's nice but to he see was him a, panic a bit. Yeah, he's very good in it. He underplays it. Yeah. It's weird this, Everyone in the film is either underplaying it or overplaying it. There's no one There's no one getting the balance right. There's no sort of level keeping it together. And that's because it's directed by a guy who's directing it as commercials. Something that is a prominent... This might be a general thing regarding 80s films, but I, I would love to put together a compilation uh, album at some point of British comedy film songs. Mm. Like songs, not, not instrumental pieces, but songs that featured never to be heard again. Unless you watch the film twice. But some of us have the 12-inch uh, single of Morons from Outer Space, I'll have you know. Can someone please put together a compilation? Now, they've done it with uh, bawdy British comedy films of the 60s, 70s, and a little bit of the 80s, and mixed it in with the likes of a, a, a few television uh, and novelty pieces. But I'm looking for... I want to I say, whoops, apocalypse. Well... Apocalypse, whoops, apocalypse. Uh, Isn't that how it goes? Yeah, but the single version is different to the version on the end credits. Yeah. I, well, know, I have no idea why. Put that on there, put Morons from Outer Space on there. Was There's probably like a woman singing at the end of Wilt. Yeah, but it's Love Hurts. It's not a comedy song. No, but it's someone specifically singing it, right? It's a cover. Yeah, but it's not... I can't remember who it is now. Yeah, but, it's not but, a comedy song. Yeah, but if you say... If you, if you have brackets next to it, Wilt... From Wilt. From Wilt. Then people from, will love go... Love from Wilt. People will laugh. In memory. I'm not sure what else you'd stick on this. Boys in Blue. You know, you'd, you'd run out clockwise? of Clockwise? What there, was used in Clockwise? Is there a song in Clockwise? I don't know. I think you're running out of options. No, I tell you what. If anyone yeah. if anyone wants to put together a bit of a bootleggy kind of vibe album of, yeah. of British comedy songs that... Bullshot. Well, there's no need for that. <laughs> no, the theme from Bullshot, the handmade film. Legs Larry Smith doing a 30s pastiche. Well, how does that go? Do you want to sing? Bullshot. He's done it again, that sort of thing. Really? Yeah. Well, all right, we'll put that in there. You might as well stick on, put on your Tata Little Girly by Neil Innes from, and, uh, from and Missionary. If and if we're going to go mental, someone came and oh, God. stole my That's 90s, that's not eligible. Hey. Well, if we're, if we're talking, splitting not, that's right. 93, it's not eligible. We, we, well, no, I'm saying, yes, but if you compare how many British comedy films actually existed up until Richard Curtis shot one out and everyone went, oh, well, that's it then. Yeah, well, as long as we don't include freedom from water, then I'm happy. I think now that you've said it, it has to be included. Oh, God. It's who's it and what's it's together again. So once again, if you have anything that you want to contribute in that respect, any links, I'll tell you what, send us any links, uh, YouTube links to any um, 
British comedy film songs, you know, things that ended on the end, appeared on the end credits or that appeared throughout the film, not instrumental pieces as such, but, but things that were specifically made for the film, send us a link at The Sitcom Club on Twitter. Also, be sure to like our page. Uh, if you go to www.facebook.com forward slash The Sitcom Club, and uh, we can go from there. So uh, is there anything else we, we would like to say before we proceed to wrap things up? About Whoops well, Apocalypse about or the what? film? There's such a large aspect of it, stuff we haven't even talked well, about. There's a couple of things that didn't get in the book. What, your uh, book or yeah, their book? No, my book, because I didn't. I found them out too late. Ah, this is exclusive then. So a, just uh, to clarify, Mr. Sloman, as I said before, you must buy the Whoops Apocalypse DVD courtesy of uh, Network. I make no money off it, by the way. I'm doing this all for free. You, you got some DVDs. I got some free DVDs, but I don't know. I don't get any royalties or nothing. Well, well, don't say that. I, I want a network to If support. anyone would like to hire me to write another book, that's an entirely separate issue. But what I'm saying is is that we would like Network DVD as a sponsor. Oh, yes. Well, yeah, I, I support I, Network I, DVD. I, I, we love Network DVD. Network DVD just, are awesome. Just spent 50 quid in their sale. I'm watching Wooden Walters at the moment. Why? It's, it's good. Oh, it's not a sitcom, though. That's what I mean. Cause it's sitcom oh, yeah, sorry. I, yeah. It wouldn't count. Well, I've, I've, I can exclusively reveal that I've ordered Allcock and Gander. Yes, my dear. Odd man out. Yes. Moon, as recommended by Mooncat, he'll be back with us uh, in the next episode. I think that's a sticker on the front of the sleeve. Mooncat approved. As recommended by. Thickest Thieves. Now, Thickest Thieves I'm interested in because mm. it's Hoskins and it's Thor. And it's a comedy. Oh, and the other one I got was... Oh, sorry, I didn't even mention this. I got The Losers. Oh, yeah, The Losers. Eric yes. Alan Corrin. Yeah, I hadn't heard of that until well, that's, it, it appeared. <laughs> well, that's like the Rejvani sitcom that they've released, which yeah, is... Lost. This is also the same kind of thing where it was from the, from the off-airs. Yeah. On airs. The offers? How do you say it? The offers. Offers, yeah. yeah. So I'm intrigued to see that. So yeah, I'm going to go all sorts. Anyway, Network DVD. They are awesome. Networkonair.com. That's their name. Is it on air? <laughs> they haven't sponsored you yet. No, no. Well, I'm going to sponsor them. Okay. Yeah, Network on Air. Networkonair.com. They're very good. So what you're about to hear is exclusive. This. Oh, great. Now, if, if... I can't wait to hear it myself. Well, this is you, not me. Oh, okay. Now, if you were to purchase the DVD, and if you haven't, why? What's wrong with you? Is um, the PDF... Yes. File that is Jonathan Sloman. Hello. Um, he, he's not a PDF file. Um, he's there's a PDF on the DVD. 150 pages of viewing notes. And then some, or mainly just that, isn't mainly it? Just that. Mainly just that. Uh, no, no, there's your... also there's also the two pilot scripts with a big caption at the front saying these came from Jonathan Sloman thanks to him. And something we I, I, dis- I got in trouble with um, Andrew Marshall because of that. And something I discovered today tonight. What? There's an Easter egg. Oh yes. If you go to the first episode, it's and rewind for 20 seconds. A mutual friend of ours, Simon Harris, interviewed Barry Morse for another network release. I think it was Space 1999, I'm not sure. And because he was a fan of Whoops Apocalypse, he asked Barry Morse about Whoops Apocalypse. And so you've got 20 seconds of Barry Morse just saying it was good fun and what an interesting project it was. There you go, that's all there was. Yeah. I did suggest an extra. There was a show called Six O'Clock Live... Uh, which was hosted by Melvin Bragg, and it would go around various cities and ask the locals what they wanted to talk about with regard to television. And I think they went to Rickmansworth for this bit, and one of the topics was Whoops Apocalypse, and Humphrey Barclay was called in to defend Whoops Apocalypse. There's a lot of hatred from it from the people of Rickmansworth. I thought it would be interesting to see this, but unfortunately they didn't have the budget. There There is a transcript of it in an edition of... TV Today magazine, mm. if you can find it from 1982. But the best bits are quoted in the book. I know I keep saying this, but if anyone has any 
additional articles that they've scanned in from anything of any time, of any of the sitcom club episodes, of any of the things that we talk about, any articles from the original period, any interviews, anything like that, any behind-the-scenes photos of anything, send us a tweet. Tweet us the picture. Send them over to us. Once again, at, at the sitcom club on, on Twitter. So, what's this added bonus? What what is that? Um, oh no, there's a few other things. No, your well, your bonus. Your well, your one, page one hundred fifty one. Oh, okay. Onwards. Well, there's a few things I hadn't thought of at the time. Go on. Oh. For example, oh, that's too long to go into. But here's one. No, 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 no. What, what, what okay. Was well, yeah, there you, was can't, a... you can't tease us with that. Say so it's too it's too long. Okay. Shortly after the show finished, there no, was sure. a, there was a charity benefit called the big one. It was an anti nuclear benefit run by Susanna York and Bill Backey, I think it's pronounced. And uh, they ran this charity benefit, and they got as many stars as they could involved, and they got a lot of playwrights involved, including people like Harold Pinter and uh, Terry Johnson, uh, Johnny Spate, and Rick Mail and Aid Emerson. They got them to do one of their sketches, and Emma Thompson. But they also got Marsha and Renwick, because they were, the <laughs> they were comedy's apocalypse writers. And there were two sketches they put on stage. One is a parody of the Russian premiere, Featuring Anton Rogers, which is mo- and it's mostly material taken from Whoops Apocalypse, the book and the show. And the other sketch involved Paul Eddington as a defense secretary. And I just mentioned it in passing, saying oh, it probably used material from the Whoops Apocalypse book. Just a guess. I later saw, uh, and I must have seen this before and not had it sink in, there's a sketch in Not the Nine O'Clock News series two, with Rowan Atkinson as the defense secretary, talking about the end of the world. And it's all, and the whole thing is how women should be more promiscuous because the end of the world is coming. So just have sex. Start dropping them before they start dropping them. That sort of thing. And it's clearly Martin and Renwick. And I'm guessing this is what Paul Eddington did because I can hear Paul Eddington doing that monologue. And I didn't mention that at all because it just the pieces didn't click into place. Can this be seen anywhere? The big one. No, I only know about it because there was a tie-in book which mm-hmm. I found and has the transcript of the premiere. And that's all it has, a transcript. It doesn't have a cast. It doesn't have anything else. I had to accost David Renwick in the BFI after his interview in February 2010 mm. and say to him, look, I want to ask you about this sketch. <laughs> and he went, oh, I've never seen that book before. Uh, do you want me to sign it? I'm like, okay, but what I really want to ask is who played the Russian premiere? And he went, oh, Anton Rogers. And we did this other sketch with Paul Eddington. And that's, what, that's how I knew about that. They did film it. There was talk in all the listings magazines at the time that it would be filmed, it would be recorded, released as a video record and a, and a big book with pictures. It came out as a book without any pictures and it was never released on any other format. Do the rushes still survive? I don't know. Do you know? If, if anyone knows the Susanna York estate, I assume, would no, I don't know. And I don't know about this Bill Back person. So yeah, that was one thing. Did anything... That you found post Whoops Apocalypse bleed into their work, into the rest of their work. I mean, obviously, certain oh, stylistics, things. definitely the dark humour with hot metal. Well, some, another thing I don't mention in the book mm-hmm. is in uh, the Steam Video Company, which was their short lived anthology sketch show between the series and the film. That features a scene where Barry Cryer plays an old man taking a very long time to walk back and forth between his master and, and mm. the door. And that obviously was reused as Graham Garden at the start of the film. So there's a few just sort of bits and pieces just being reworked, yeah. And um, just for the benefit of any audience listening, 
Simon Harris's no. favourite. Oh, is that his favourite? Is his favourite moment? I think Louis Barth as well. It's his favourite moment. And Louis Barth as well. We've 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 got Whoopsport clips on in the background just to keep our minds going. How would you describe that scene that we? He just, just chucked a dog out the window. Peter Jones chucking a dog out the window is funny. There's much more to it than that, but you have to see it. <laughs> Well, there's, there's not... It wouldn't be funny if it wasn't Peter Jones, that's the thing. Well, yeah, he's lovely. If it was mad, if it was someone madcap. Well, I think we've pretty much covered everything now. Oh, no, I had more to say. Oh, have we? <laughs> what I wanted to say, I just wanted to end Get on with it, then. by saying, uh, when the book came out, the PDF came out, and I, I said earlier, they included, network included the two. Should have been a book released by the BFI no, I, Well, uh, in their TV classics or comedy sitcom Books. As series. I remember anyway, it, just saying. Network were going to do a bit of a semi deluxe treatment on Whoops Apocalypse. It was going to have a few extras and it was going to have a book included. Mm-hmm. Then everything went quiet. I think there were rights problems. I don't know with who. But when it came back, they had no budget. So there were no extras. The one I suggested of Six O'Clock Live was gone. Mm-hmm. And the book had become a PDF file. So I said, Oh, well, if you want to include some other stuff, I've got these two scripts that I typed up of the two pilot scripts, the BBC pilot and the LWT pilot. And they included them, but they put a big first page saying something like this, thanks to Jonathan Sloman, we have these pilots, and he researched and found them. And I got a message on Twitter about a week or so later from Andrew Marshall saying, you shouldn't have put those pilots on the disc. We don't like, I don't like my work being used. You know, there's a reason we didn't make them, there's a reason we changed them. And then within seconds, he sent me one saying, oh, but it was a, it's a really, obviously, a labour of, a labor of love, so cheers. So uh, uh, Andrew Marshall was fairly famous for that sort of hmm. up and down. Uh, um, he might emotions. be listening. I don't know. Do you want to apologise? Sorry, Andrew. I apologised to him via, via tweets, and DMs. What, constantly? Yeah, we're friends now, <laughs> I think. And we chatted on Facebook, actually. He added me on Facebook. And how would people find you on Twitter, by the way? I'm Squiddy UK. Squiddy UK. All one word? All one word. But Andrew Marshall added me on Facebook. And I was going through my dad's archives, all his old film memorabilia and whatnot. And I found two issues of SFX magazine, which was an early 80s cassette magazine. Magazine on tape. I, I've got some of those. Yeah, they were really good. Uh, and they had a sort of weird... They had a vaguely alternative bent, but not so alternative. So it was like Paul McCartney... And or Sandy Shaw or the Smiths. It was all it was not, all very interesting. Not to be confused with the science fiction magazine. No, no, this was music on yeah, cassette, yeah. and it interviewed comedians from time to time. Michael Palin's on one, uh, Billy Conley, I think Alexis Sale. But I posted up a picture of these two, saying, "Look at these weird magazines." And Andrew Marshall commented, saying, "Oh, me and David Redwick did one of those." It's like really, yeah, we probably did what's apocalypse. We talked about Squeeze and Blondie, I seem to recall. I, and then I went to luckily there's a site which has scanned in all the covers of these SFXs. And there's one that says Squeeze and Blondie, so I bought it off eBay. And yeah, they're on there in the studio discussing these record reviews, talking about Whoops Apocalypse, and making jokes about Ackerbilk. So that was a major, a major find that I didn't know anything about until uh, long after the book came out. I'm hoping I found them all, but there are all these little moments that are just lost. I mean, the pilot, the live show. The badge. The badge. I'd like to know more about this. Um, I want the badge. This St. James Festival that Barry Morse held. I want to know where the prop for Dissident, the board game, is. Oh, yeah. Well, that's that's uh, that whole scene's in Russian. It's, it's right at the start of the episode, and there's a whole long scene that nobody could understand, which is great. It took me a long time to understand it. I don't think I got it till I read the script. Mm. They all want to play as the same character, Sarkar- Sarkarov, 
famous dissident. So the uh, the little guy Blinsky, he's fascinating because he's played by a, a stand-up comedian called George Clayden, who goes right back to he's in Magical Mystery Tour and he's one of the Oompa Loompas. And then he worked with Marty Feldman in Marty Feldman back together again in the seventies. He's got a, a great long interesting career. I'd love to know what stand-up he did. The idea of this midget stand-up in the seventies really interests me. Hmm. Um, but sadly, he's uh, long gone. Rusty Goff. No, he's not Rusty Goff. No. Rusty Goff, Rusty Goff might remember. Who knows? <laughs> Anything? <laughs> he might. Who knows? He must have seen him. <laughs> Is that? I the, mean, they were... that, that's a podcast I like to hear. Rusty Goff remembers anything. <laughs> I remember. I remember. Oh, I mean, uh, they, they were Oompa Loompas three, together. Three, two, one. I'm guessing it's like Vietnam. Once you're once you're Oompa Loompas together, you never forget. Well. Not to deviate. This is why I said not to have a clip in the background, because I get to a nice ending and then they go, oh, it's that bloke. Yes, I know. Well, nevertheless. Nevertheless. To bring it all round. Yes, I could happily talk for hours about the, the littlest aspect. In fact, I just did. Well if, <laughs> well, if anyone has any questions, they can send you a message. Can yeah, we could do a follow-up. Well, what, mailbag. Uh, if you have any questions about any any of the... Uh, Second Club. Whoops Apocalypse Whoops, or any Marshall and Renwick projects? Anything. Uh, I'm, I'm sure we can get you on board for another... Marshall Renwick related podcast with uh, about hot metal hot metal or if you see God tell him that's got an interesting story to it and if we do a little sketch show special maybe we'll talk about end of part one Steam Video Company indeed well I think it's about time we wrapped up this is the sitcom club uh, thank you for listening this is me George George Grimwood you can follow me at Grimword G-R-I-M-W-O-R-D on Twitter and, and this uh, is me Jonathan Sloman wear your mushroom with pride so We'll see you again. Uh, Mooncat will be back in the next episode, as as will Ocho and and Bog and Strawberry, I'm sure, or at least a combination of one or the other, or both, or some, or all. Uh, probably not me. We'll see. But thank you very much for listening. Uh, this is the Sitcom Club. Go to the, all the appropriate places, Facebook and Twitter and the like. Find us. Come say hello. And we'll see you again next time. Cheerio.